Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Old Brother, a podcast about legendary musical institution The Fall. Each week we light along a guest to chat about their experiences and memories of the group. As you probably know by now, we consist of me, Paul Hanley, and my brother Steve, who was a member of the band for 20 years. You can find us at all the usual suspects. We're hosted at play.acast.com forward slash s forward slash Old Brother. All episodes are also available on YouTube. Search for Old Brother Podcast and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. This week we're joined by legendary producer and all-round good guy John Leckie, who can count three of the most successful Fall albums among the myriad of legendary records he's produced. Hope you enjoy it. Old Brother, the podcast about the Fall, a podcast about the Fall, uh, featuring me, Paul Hanley, and my brother, the bass player for a long time, Mr Stephen Hanley. All right, Steve, are you well? Yes, I'm fine, thanks. You? Good, good, good. Yeah, great. We've got a VIP oh, this week. Very, a good, important, good... very important producer. Yes. Um, I think I, I think I'm right in saying that working with the fall is is the highlight of his career. I think. Um, I, I think I don't think anybody's going to argue with. <laughs> Not looking at all the other stuff he's done. I don't think so. No, to be fair, I think the highlight of his career was producing the intro to the Old Brother podcast. Yeah, I think that's probably yes. it. Yes. Yeah, so, without further ado, Mr. John Leckie. Good afternoon, John. How are you? Good afternoon. Um, happy to be here. Yeah, have a good chat. Thanks for doing it. Uh, we've only really spoken probably um, in the studio, but even then we didn't really speak much because we just got on with it. <laughs> we did. I mean, I, I, it, 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 oh, it was, it was frowned on then. <laughs> it's a never-ending source of frustration for me that I didn't sit down for 12 hours and, and grill you about your career before you get, before we met. But well, I'm, now's my chance. So, you started as a tape hob at Abbey Road, is that right? Is that how you started off in music? That's right, yeah. How did you get that? How, did, how well, does one become a tape hop at Abbey Road in no, it's 1970? It's interesting. Is that how you started in music? Because you probably know I'm not really a musician. I mean, I've never played in a band. I can bash out some chords on the guitar or the piano, but that's about it. I've never, yeah. I was never a musician. And funny enough, when I was growing up, none of my mates were musicians. You know, I didn't know anyone. That, I made a couple of guys at school, but I didn't know them that way. I didn't hang out with musicians. But right. I did go to lots of gigs twice, three times a week. All so the you, gigs you had no London. aspirations to be in a band then? No, I always wanted to be down the front in the audience or up the back uh, doing the sound check, getting the sound, because I used to go to gigs and notice how much, um, you know, how, how the sound was always be different and everything. Uh, and, you know, and you look in, and then I saw a recording studio and it um, – it, it it looked like it looked like a spaceship you know it was all flashing lights and dark and you know mysterious and lots of levers to pull and buttons to push and it was just like a spaceship so i thought oh i want to work in a spaceship <laughs> so how did you come to getting into a studio in the first place so 
in the student first place, I wrote a letter. I went to um, I went to college. I, I did a film and TV co- thing at college. I, I got A levels at school. Went to grammar school. Got A levels. Got geography and physics, and didn't get maths. I just couldn't. I couldn't even get O level maths. It just went in one ear and out the other. But somehow I liked the physics and I liked the geography and that stuff. And um, and but so it was no good going to university. So. I, I don't know. I just went to a film and TV course at a, a college in Bromley, which is right on the other side of London. It used to take me about two hours every day to get there and get back on, on the train. But I did that, and I guess through that, and that, and all the end of the college course, all that was on offer was uh, a BBC job. You know, I went for the interview and instantly got the job at the BBC. But again, it was more, it was more exams and all that kind of thing. And I and then I got a job in a little film company down in Soho in the West End and then I thought oh fuck what can I do I must be able to do something I know I'll write to all the recording studios um, one thing I've missed out actually because at college nothing to do with film and television I did a thesis my end of term thesis that we had, everyone had to write and you could choose the subject so I chose electronic music uh, and so I wrote I don't know how many words I've still got it in a in a folder and it's all handwritten with you know, fountain pen and ink is not even typed <laughs> out, really, and all the drawings and stuff. But at the time, this is 1967, and so I used to go around record shops and take notes on the, at the back of um, of Stockhausen records and anything the electronic music, weird Italian composers and things that did electronics and the French and the the French and the Germans had um uh, what could you say uh, laboratories they were called to like like the radiophonic workshop um yeah. but it was more for composers see the radiophonic workshop was a, a service to bbc radio and provided the film music you know the music and stuff yeah and um uh, they didn't actually do what you could say compositions that would be performed by an orchestra or performed in a concert hall kind of thing. Yeah. But the French and Germans and the Italians and the Greeks and everyone else in Europe was well into a concert being uh, turning on a tape machine with a, an orchestra or people playing along to a tape machine as bizarre as what the music was, you know, um, right. in Stockhausen and Schoenberg and uh, Pierre. And also the French had musique concrète, mu- uh, con- oh, yeah. concrete music where you cut up, um, you know, you cut up tape and stuff. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I wrote this uh, thesis on on electronic music, and I also because I was at the TV college, we had uh, a TV studio tied with a drama studio. So we would do a drama production with the drama school, and it was actually Chekhov plays, which was uh, what the drama students were studying. And we did twenty eight Chekhov plays, wow. a different one every two weeks. And set four cameras up, professional, like professional proper cameras, um, and then took it in turns under supervision kind of thing to do a different job. So one week you'll be a cameraman and then you'll be doing the sound. Then you might be the director. You might be the vision mixer. You know, director, you have to talk to the actors kind of thing. (laughs) So it's a bit scary for a 17-year-old, you know. Hell of an opportunity, though, all the same. Yeah, it was great. I had a really good time, but there was a lot of chaos and a lot of happening you know 1967 68 you know um lsd at weekends and things <laughs> and then struggling over to bromley to go to for nine o'clock you know getting up at seven and going to the go and then you had to do tech college so you also had to do what's called city and guilds with, oh, with yeah. electronics and it's a telephone engineer so you sat in a classroom with a load of telephone engineers and uh learned the electronics and the line transmission so I, I got all that and stuff and i guess that's how i got a job at abbey road but i i suddenly dawned on me when i was working in this film car i know i'll write some letters to the um to all the studios and at that time all the studios there was only about five studios which was emi decca olympic uh, I think it's called IPC in uh, oh, yeah. in um, Regent Street Way. Uh, yeah. I think that was it, really. Um, I just wrote some letters, and Abbey Road EMI was the only one that replied, and they said, come for the interview, and I showed him my thesis, and um, 
they showed me round and uh, a month later phoned up and said, can you start on Monday kind of thing. So Blimey. that's how I got the job. What was I... Yeah, yeah, so that would <laughs> be just after Jeff, Jeff Emmerich left for Apple then, wouldn't it? Well, you, there was you, a lot of vacancies, that's right. Yeah. Jeff Emmerich left for Apple and Air Studios as well. No, uh, there, yeah, course, there was, yeah. I'm not quite certain. There was Jeff Emmerich with Apple and Air Studios was happening. Yeah, of course, that was George Martin. That's right, it? and Dave Harris came from Abbey Road. All those big studios, all that uh, they were people from Abbey Road, you know. Um, yeah. So there was vacancies, and it's funny because I tell you another story. Is Neil Richmond was the guy was the tape op who's everyone says, "Oh, I got his job because he was sacked." And you know what he was right. sacked for? He uh, late night session. He took his shoes off, so yeah, he just you know he just had his socks on uh, to do the session because it was like gone midnight kind of thing, and on this late session, so he had his he just got running the tape and had his feet up on the chair, but didn't have his shoes on. And all of a sudden, the manager of the studio, whose name was Alan Stagg, who was a real military guy and, you know, real law and order and uh, very strict. I never met him. Um, he came in, saw this guy not wearing his shoes and instantly fired him right. and said, like you, leave the session, leave the building right now and go home kind of thing. <laughs> this in, in, in the room where they recorded Sergeant Pepper, presumably, That's he got correct. sacked for yeah, not shoes well have been doing Sergeant <laughs> Pepper <laughs> at the time. But to be fair, Mark had sacked a few drummers, though, didn't yeah. he, for taking your shoes off? <laughs> you'd, you'd sack Carl for taking his shoes yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While eating a sandwich. <laughs> While eating a sandwich, yeah. So you worked. Is that true that you worked with all the Beatles individually? At Abbey yeah. Road? Is that is that true? Um, yeah, individually. So I I started 1970 February, and they were mixing Let It Be, but all of Abbey Road had been recorded in 1969, yeah. the year before the album. Yeah, and they gone like John had just done in December. John had done uh, Instant Karma. Paul was up in Scotland doing his stuff yeah. on his own. Um, Ringo was making a record called Sentimental Journey, which is... Yeah, cover versions, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, pub songs, a picture of a pub on the front. Well, I tape up some of that. I even tape up some of that, you know? Did you? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, Bloody was, hell. It, well, you just sit at the back, really, and take notes kind of yeah. thing i think they were overdubbing i don't know i can't remember much about it really and then also right. also when paul came and then i also did a session that i had a really vague memory of and this guy phoned me up who was writing a book about paul mccartney I had all the dates and you know the recording sheets and the tape mm -hmm. boxes so they it's all got my initials on kind of thing and the actual dates and oh you must have worked with paul mccartney on march the 15th on this session because you've written the tape box out you know and you were there wow and um i don't remember much about it actually i remember john curlander not much been just paul and linda and wondering where the band was and listening back endlessly to the four tracks i think he'd just come down from scotland with what he'd recorded maybe i'm amazed right. on that first solo album maybe i'm amazed and stuff and wow. just playing but the funny thing <laughs> the funny thing was um I always remember standing up in Studio 2 and that you got the control room is upstairs and so you look down on the big studio, if you remember. Yeah. And, see it. and um, uh, Paul and Linda were down there, so the doors were closed and everything was turned. Paul and Linda were down there and Paul was making tea out of kettle and he was making tea and he was waving at me and I was like, oh, what's he saying? And, you know, I'd only been there like a week and I didn't couldn't work the speakers or anything there was no one there so i opened the door and said what you know did you want something he said do you want a cup of tea <laughs> I'm like, yeah yeah of course yeah thanks yeah great and sort of went back in and then he called he called the as i came down the stairs to get it he said it's orange pico and i'm like oh orange pico he said why is that all right and i'm going yeah yeah i'll have it so i took this <laughs> orange pico tea and it looked like tea of course, and I thought it was going to like orange juice, and so I drank it. I thought I was just really expecting it to taste like orange juice, and it didn't at all. It just tasted like tea. It's <laughs> funny, like is he having me on? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you only had English breakfast, then, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so I have to make sure that this in this whole uh, discussion isn't just you saying something and me saying wow after yeah. it because you know. <laughs> There's a lot of that because I've, I was, I've got a list here of people you worked with before the fall. Oh yeah, and there's they're all on there, aren't they? Sid Barrett, you worked with Sid Barrett. 
Uh, yeah, I tape up some sessions in the 70s, in the uh, very early 1971, the second Barrett album. Um, oh, right. That must have been a bit bizarre. He was, he was on his way by then, wasn't he? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose so. I didn't speak to him much. He didn't speak to me much, but he didn't, he didn't speak to, to anyone anybody. much, you know. <laughs> and it was difficult. My only memory is trying to get a song that was complete, you know, because when you write yeah. tape boxes, if the song's complete, then you usually write complete. And yes. if it if it's a full start, you put FS, full start, which means they don't come in at the top. Right. And a, a BD is not a bass drum, it's a breakdown, <laughs> which means okay. they get to the second verse and as they go into the second chorus, they fuck up and stop. Well, that's a breakdown, you see, it's not a full start. Yeah, because they, they kept everything at Abbey Road, is that right? They kept everything you recorded? Or was that, I mean, I've read that about the Beatles, so that was just them, or was I that for everybody? They just kept everything? Um, I think not necessarily, no. Um, it, oh, right. it depends on the producer and whether you would wipe tape. So, if you're doing uh, even maybe with the Beatles, I'm not quite certain. I don't. I don't think when you see like when they've done you know 64 takes of something or yeah. something, it doesn't mean 64 takes because they might have been including all the full starts and breakdowns. You always give it a number because then it's reference. You see, right? Okay. Because you might do a great intro you know drum fill and the band kicks in and go wow that's great and then you never get it as good as that for whatever reason yeah, yeah, so even, even a full start you can use and edit on you know particularly a breakdown yeah. you know it's a, um, i'm sure it's a little bit easier to do that kind of thing these days I'm not kidding yeah would that have been your job then with a bit of chalk and the razor blade doing that kind of stuff yeah eventually yeah pretty quickly yeah <laughs> that's what it you would been, do i don't know i don't know how you had the bottle to do that <laughs> It must be. It must be a bit nerve wracking. Uh, no, it's not really. You just don't think about it. <laughs> no, so the big one, I want, yeah. the big one I want to mention, which I know Steve is keen to talk about, Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople. Oh, yes. Yeah, Mott. Yeah, Mott the Hoople. That's right. I actually recorded all the way from Memphis. Dun, 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 on the piano. Um, wow. Oh, same wow again. <laughs> Uh, I remember him coming in, look, not early, like 11 or just before lunch kind of stuff, and bashing away at the piano, and um, someone got him a sandwich or something, and he was just like trying to work out the piano run. This is Ian Hunter. Yeah. Um, and um, add the song, and by 4 o'clock we'd taken it and done it. You know, we'd been set up for doing other stuff as well. But in actually, we moved into three, which is a smaller studio. So we started off in two, and it was all a bit uh, spacious. And as soon as we went into three, he loved the piano. And, and, you know, it was just a smaller room, you know. Right. And I can't remember what else we did. Drive-In Sister, what else is on that record? Didn't do Honolulu Boogie. I think I did nearly everything apart from Honolulu Boogie. Wow. Never again, I'm wowing again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and him for the dudes is on it, isn't it? And is... I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a good run. I had a good run, actually, because I did Mott the Hoof, I did Wizard as well. I did a whole album, like a week, with Roy Wood and Wizard and his jazz thing. And at the end of the record, and a lot of it that wasn't singing, it was kind of instrumental kind of stuff. Uh, and jazz arrangements and at the end we played it on the speakers and re-recorded it playing on the speakers as if it was in a nightclub so we got a load of glasses and knives and forks and plates and rattled them around <laughs> while the music was playing and used that as the as the album you know and you know what it never came out i've never tried big market for a wizard jazz album i wouldn't have thought <laughs> <laughs> well they were great you know with the horn section you know and what yeah. we plays with course, that, yeah. and the cello right. you know yeah, well, that was he. Started, he sort of started the electric light orchestra thing, didn't he? That was him originally. Yeah. And he doesn't yeah. really. You didn't, you didn't get points on. I wish it could be Christmas every day, did you? <laughs> I wish I could. I wish it could be Christmas. <laughs> uh, See my baby jive. Uh, Steve Lillywhite did that as an engineer. See my baby jive. Um, I think he recorded that and mixed it, but he never produced wow. it. But he, re- he he was the engineer and all that. And then ballpark incident, Alan Parker. Oh, that's a great, that is a great song. Song. Oh, yeah, it was terrifying, that. Because they yeah. did that in two, right, when Alan Parsons was doing Dark Side of the Moon, you know. 
Yeah. So Alan wow. really knew the room, you know, and what was going on. Yeah, of course. And he just churned out all all these, you know, make me smile, come up and see me. Uh, that group pilot, he did a lot of stuff with, you know, all that 73, 1974. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this will, this will be the, the wilderness years before Punk came along to save us all and bring some decent yeah. music in. Yeah, <laughs> what a load of balls! It's funny that about the seventies, isn't it? Yeah, punk came yeah. along because everything was boring, but the amount of music that came out just a couple of years before. The amount of gigs people were going to as yeah. well. Like you say, John, you were going to two or three a week. But every yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So were we. We used to go uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays always, and, and even a Friday or a Saturday. You know, we, we never went for all nighters on a Saturday, but roundhouse on Sunday afternoons at four. Did you, um, you could write a song did about you that, float did you up there? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> and there were a lot of uh, free Hyde Park concerts on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, that nearly every Saturday afternoon, sixteen nights. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a particular bugbear of mine when uh, the Rolling Stones were on the bones of their arse in 1968 and they owed the tax man <laughs> 18 million quid. They did a free concert in Hyde Park. Two years ago, they're all multi-millionaires. £125 <laughs> a ticket. Man. But anyway, I'll move on. So, we get to the sort of late 70s. You did, uh, 79, you did Public Image, the single? That's right, yeah, yeah. No credit or anything, but um, Jim, what's his name? Jim Walker, the, the, the drummer. Jim yeah, Walker, the- donut. Yeah, yeah, what, he was a great he was. Canadian from Vancouver and came over on the off chance, just come over and slept on on the floor on people's settees and any gigs going, you know, and rehearsed with the band and answered the the ad in Melody Maker kind of thing. Because that, that's, that, that's a great album. That. So this, they did the single on its own, did they? And then did the album? Yeah, yeah. I was cool. I was kind. I'd left Abbey Road just before, months before, and was kind of not really working for Virgin, but they were acting as my management to get me gigs because I'd already produced loads of. I, I well, I produced Bebop Deluxe and the adverts, and I produced about. Uh, yeah. Magazine. So, is there any particular reason you left Abbey Road then, John? Yeah, because um, the well, the only reason I, I left is because they wouldn't hire me out. They wouldn't um, let me work for another record company unless I brought them into Abbey Road, right? Because it was EMI right. and they trained me, and they were I could only work for EMI Studios, like doing another band that like Mott the Hooper was on CBS and on Sony, and that could I could do that at Abbey Road. But when it came to doing XTC at the Manor Studios, this was signed to Virgin and the Manor Studios and then the Townhouse. I, I did the first XTC album at the Manor because they said they couldn't hire me out. I said, well, they don't want to come to Abbey Road. They can't afford it. They want to do an album, but they want to know what rate you would charge for me to go and engineer the record or produce the record. Well, I ended up producing it. Right. So you'd, you'd have just been on EMI wages no matter how much they charge. Absolutely, yeah. They could charge 1,000 quid a day and I'd just get me wages kind of thing. Well, um, that's the way it would have worked, and that's the way it did work for a lot of people, you know. It worked, for, it worked, a, lot, it worked a lot for George Martin a long time for that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I'd um, it got to the stage where they said no and almost to the and then I'd and it was mad because the week I left Abbey Road I had three albums in the charts in the top 20 I had Bebop Deluxe XTC and the adverts I think were the three albums wow. and the adverts was a top 20 single um, no time to be 21. no no time to be 21 it was cool ah right okay um and so, anyway, I was there. I was trained by them, and uh, reached, you know, and was providing independent, not yet, not all EMI, bringing in other companies to work at the studio, um, and doing top twenty albums, top twenty singles. And I said, "Oh, sorry, you know, you have to, you know, uh, come back in a year's time. We can't find a position for you." So, you know, so, so of course, the obvious thing was to leave and just be freelance yeah. and uh-huh. you know and uh, trying to get a manager or someone to deal with all that because you fucking work every day i mean there's no yeah. time for anything there's no social life you never watch a film you never sit down and watch telly because you're always in the studio or you're sleeping i mean yeah. it's like it's like that really um 
non-stop from one project to the other when i look at you know i haven't got diaries for some of those times but when i look at like what i did it was just full on every seven days a week and going all over the place with all different things yeah um, so you were at the beck and call of some of the band there so if they want to be in there at three in the morning you've got to be there haven't you I suppose? yeah 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 so speaking of bands that want to be there at three in the morning so you were freelance by the sort of late by the 80s then were you and just working for people who wanted to hire you that's right yeah yeah from right. when i left abbey road so yeah all through through then and until i met you i suppose yeah and still still was i never really got a manager until 1985 86 so <laughs> you, you finish working with the fall right i need a manager now <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like that yeah. Yeah, so how did how did you come onto the falls radar or how did they come onto yours was that beggar's banquet got you was it beggar's banquet uh, i think it was terry hollingsworth was uh, oh yeah yeah and our guy and um he sent me a a cassette you know a tape of some demos i can't remember what it was it was probably a peel session right okay and uh i phoned him up and said yeah you know uh (laughs) send me some more some more stuff and he sent me the video for um what's it called perverted by language oh you've got the job yeah it's a whole video isn't it yeah yeah it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's great eat yourself fitter and all that yeah yeah, yeah. Not, not the biggest budget of uh videos but no it's not exactly two tribes yeah <laughs> anyway he sent me that and i said yeah yeah i'll do it when do you want to do it when do you want to you know come in I, t- I can't remember it being an album maybe it was well, I think we did we did, did we do Old Brother first we did yeah. kind of- didn't we do Old Brother and Creep first I think so yeah, yeah separately yes. from and, but was it was it the same studio because we did them two singles and then we did the Wonderful and Frightening World didn't we it, were it they was, at the same place I think it was it was all at um, Focus was it Focus yeah which which was in South London somewhere and yeah. it was suggested or demanded by Beggar's Banquet by Terry Hollingsworth because I don't know if they were getting a what deal or I don't, don't know what, you know, oh, you're going to do it there, that studio, is that okay? And uh, I always like the challenge of working at different studios. You know, since I'd left Abbey Road, I just wanted to work. I always like the challenge of going into any studio, even with a mixer that you'd never seen before, and making a record, you know, it was much more exciting than... So you had no say in that whatsoever, then? Um, if I'd objected, I'm sure, right. yeah, I, I could have objected, but I have no objection, really. I think I went to see the studio, and it was quite big, and it was wood, and, you know, I yeah. think it was upstairs, the control room upstairs, and it was quite a lot of space there, I remember, because you had the two drummers, yeah. Because we needed it, didn't we? Because with the two drummers and everything, yeah. Because we, we were kind of on a bit of a, an upward trajectory studio-wise, because we'd done stuff... Cargo, which was in Rochdale, that was like 16 track. And then we went to a Pluto in Manchester, which we did, that was the first 24 track we used, I think. And that was where we did Perverted by Language. So that was just, oh, no, hang on, that was, no, no, it was just before you, wasn't it? Yeah. Perverted by Language. Yeah. And then we did, we went to London, because that was like, so that was like, you know, one of the best studios we've been in, I think, by then. Yeah. We weren't used to decent studios. <laughs> no, what happened very, very soon after, um, it was sold to um, Stock Aikman Waterman. That's right. It became the Stock Aikman Waterman studio. They they bought it. Right. Um, so as far as, and it was exclusively for them, so you couldn't use it. Um, right. I don't know what it's like now. I can't even remember the address. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Right. Great, yeah, so, great sound we got there. I mean, the sound it was, was yeah, great. really good, really good drum sound and everything. As as people have heard, if they'd heard the intro to this, that's <laughs> uh, that's not me either. That's Carl, isn't it? I was, I was on keyboards on Old Brother, as oh, I recall. Because right. I remember you hired in a decent keyboard because I had that bloody Snoopy thing, that thing that had been with the band since well, since the band formed, since the second gig. And it had been passed down and it was falling to pieces. And I think you took one look at it and said, well, I'm not using that. <laughs> but I have really good memories of that session. It was really good. Although although they all kind of blend into each other for me, the the two singles and the album. That's right. How long yeah. would that have taken? How long do you reckon we were in for uh, the wonderful Friday world off? Do you reckon two weeks, maybe? Yeah, two weeks. I'd say two weeks, if not more. I don't think and then where did we mix it? Was it mixed there? I can't remember. I should have researched this. Um, I don't know, actually, because... Um, 
I, I think... don't know that we were there for the mix. It's not, I don't think I was. I, don't, I, think, not, I think it was. I'm not so sure I was either. I think it. No. I think it was just Mark and Briggs, was it? I think it well, It could have been, yeah. And we may have. I don't know if we went there or if we went to Blackwing, which was another studio near London Bridge. Um, I have a memory of coming down for one night to listen to the drums. Mark asked me to come down. Oh, yeah. And it was one night, and which was kind of unprecedented. I don't know why he did it. I don't know who he was trying to. Curry favour or something, but I went down and said, "Oh, tell me, listen, listen to the drums for one night." And it was basically just to say, "Yeah, that'll." Yeah. I don't think I had much say about how it turned out, but I think that was for the wonderful and frightening world. Though, I think. Okay. Hmm. I don't think it was the same studio, though. I think it was somewhere else. Yeah, so you might be right. Because hmm. how did you find that with them working with two drummers? That you, you hadn't done that. Oh, we did Wizards have two drummers? I can't remember. Now. No, they didn't, did they? I'm getting them mixed up with Shawdy Waddy. No, they did. Roy Wood played the drums. He always laid down two drums, and right. on the on the recording, he would play drums with the other. There were two drummers on Wizard, of course. Ah, right. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think so. We did them both at the same time, didn't we? So you did. So that must have been a bit unusual to have two drummers playing at the same time. I presume. <laughs> how, else, how else are you going to do it to, other than to a click? Well, you, you get know, Roy Wood to come in and overdub it. That's how you do it. <laughs> I think, think we, we, I think we did. It was pretty much all live, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I seem yeah. to remember. There's a, there's a. I've got to say a sample. I mean, it would have been a sample. And Carl smashing a bottle on something at the beginning of Old Brother. Oh I yeah, that was live. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, edited in. Yeah, but no, I'm sure it was all live. I always remembered um, Carl. Is it the the end of? Um, Lay of the Land or Two by Four, where Carl plays the bass through the Cray amp. He comes off. Yeah, yeah. Off That's the, the end of two. Uh, the end of Lay of the Land. Yeah. Lay of the Land. Yeah. The end of Lay of the Land when he plays. Finally, it. some decent bass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when he do that, you know, and we did all that live. It was fantastic. But when we when we played it live, that song, he'd do that. He'd get by by the time he got off the kit, put the bass on. Found the plectrum, switched the amp on, the song was over. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of that, though. That's the only thing with two drummers one of them playing keyboards, one playing bass. There's a lot of pissing about, isn't there? Get up, get back down, walk around there. Because we weren't exactly playing Wembley Stadium, so there wasn't a lot of room for an Uber. Pain in the arse. Well, it looked and sounded great as well. Yeah? <laughs> oh, it looked yeah. all right when we both sat down. It's just us shuffling about like it didn't look so great. But what can you do? So um, I'm trying to think what was on that. So there was, yeah, Play of the Land, that was the first one. And we did that sort of, uh, you got a credit for vocals on that, John. We oh, did yeah, that. Lee, Lee, Lee. Lee. Yeah, that was from uh, Quatermass. I think they'd been on the telly just before. There was a TV series about Quatermass and there was this cult in it. I think I see if memory serves, and then we had we had Ga- uh, um, Dingy and didn't we Gavin Gavin from the Virgin Prunes? Mm. He oh came yeah, in. he was good. I was going to I was going to say we we did we did quite a lot then because we did the wonderful and frightening world of the fall and that call for escape route EP all at the same time, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I think is that right, Steve? Yeah, that is right. Yeah, that was all in that studio. Right. right, yeah. Well, we, we worked we... hard. We'd do three, four songs a day, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. Well, and... I, t- well, I know you. I find it hard to see how people s- spend that much more. You know, I mean, mm. you sort, you know, the, the idea that people spend months and months and months recording songs that they then go on to play live. What do they do? I mean, I'm not, I'm not being flippant. <laughs> I don't understand how you can do it if you go in an album that's got eleven songs on, which you can all play at the same time on stage. How do you spend months doing that? Is it all mixing? Uh, it must get a bit tortuous. If you're just going to go in, if you're going to play it the way that you play it on stage, the the time is spent on what could you say rearranging parts. Right. Okay. Because you know what I'm going with. This, yeah, I, I I can see where you. Certain <laughs> <laughs> so other Manchester band who managed to spend five years doing it all. That's right. Yeah. There you go. What were they doing? When you what, get questioning every little detail, you lose confidence in it, and you 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 question every little detail, every nuance, you know. And then you want to try different guitars, you know, play the same, exactly the same part, different guitars, different amps, and all those things. 
and you're gone forever, you know, especially now with a computer because, yeah. you know, you're it's not even on track, tracks. It? It's not like 16 track and that's it. You know, there's no more, you can't put, we can't overdub anything, you know. No. Um, now it's, it's, it's stupid because people record, you know, a guitar with six microphones and you end up with six microphones of one guitar, you know, and then they, oh, can we double track it? And that's 12 microphones. That's 12 <laughs> tracks on your fucking computer. Just two <laughs> guitars, you know, when, you know, that's how a lot of people do it. So you can choose what mic you want later. The fuck say, right. choose the mic now and get on with the music, you know. Yeah, I mean, there is, the, I mean, I, there's got to be a payoff with performance, hasn't there, when you start doing that? Always, every time. It's always yeah. about the but It has nothing to do with the equipment or anything. It's about performance and vibe and attitude and, uh, you know, musical, if you're doing solos and things, dexterity or natural yeah. thing. It's always, you always, even if the solo's a bit out of tune, you go with the vibe, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you know, and the same with with tracks. You know, this whole thing of playing to click tracks. You know, which everyone seems to do, and click tracks on the grid. You know, and I hate that. I hate playing to click track. Which it, it, it seems to be you're not allowed not to these days, are you? I don't yes. think. Well, of course you can. <laughs> not, um, well, not not in the bands I'm in. You're not. <laughs> uh, I tell you why. I tell you why. Because as soon as you play to a click track, it sounds modern. It sounds everything's in its place. It sounds right, nice, okay. direct. Uh, what's, what's that? What's that word? Everything's sharpened when you get the photograph and you sharpen. Right. Okay. You know, yeah. And so that's high what, resolution. Yeah, high resolution and that that little thing that you slide across that says sharpen on your yeah, photography right. thing. That's what that's what you're doing by playing to the grid. You know. All the detail, yeah. all the, the mystery or the blurriness is taken out. You know, the, the mystery is in the blurriness, I suppose. And as soon as yeah, you yeah. sharpen, you know, you look at an over-sharpened photograph and then listen to a dead tight to the grid song being played, you know. Um, there's a similar, you know, the same sort of thing. But it's it never lasts that. I always, I always kind of... Uh, I always thought it was it, it was when everyone was playing what is it uh, quiet verses and loud choruses you know excluding yeah. like the Pixies and then really quiet yeah. or something Pixies was just one of them Nirvana everyone was doing yeah. it in the nineties kind of thing um, it, it's like a big explosion it's like going on a fairground ride and you think wow this is great every the drums are to the click the grid everything's in tune yeah. it's all like all the drum fills you know everything comes in in time wow that's great and the song's finished and it's like you've had that uh funfair ride you know you've experienced yeah. that and you don't want to hear it again because you know it's all right yeah Whereas when you hear yeah. something that's not done to a click and there's not you yeah. know you know well, do you think it takes something away then yeah, yeah yeah it does it takes away the, the human element you could say yeah. you know so on a similar note, then, so was there was any kind of pressure from Beggar's Banquet because they'd invested it to make the fall brighter and poppier, or um, put your... <laughs> no, I don't, I don't remember Beggar's Banquet. It was more, um, I don't know, I don't know. It was a general feeling. With I first met um, Mark and Brits at uh, John Fogerty's house, Mind of oh, Music, yeah. the publisher guy. Yeah, yeah. And he made a vow in his place. And um, he's okay. He's real London sort of yeah, London yeah. bloke publisher sort of thing. And mm-hmm. um, I saw him about a year or two ago, actually. I hadn't seen him for when Mark died, actually. We were going to go up to the funeral. I don't know if you know what, uh, this whole story there. But we finally, we I got together with John Fogarty after bloody 30 years, you know. Yes. <laughs> and wow. he, because of his publishing, he made a lot of money from sampling. You know, he bought the publishing rights on the Fatback Band and um, right, okay. not, not Nile Rogers, all that disco stuff that was getting yeah, on uh-huh. the, in the late 70s. He just bought the publishing that no one was interested in. And then they started sampling it, and he was getting loads wow. of dosh, you know. Um, yeah. But he never seems – anyway, I, I went to it. That's how I met. And right. also Brits being there, of course, made it all much more uh, – what could I say? Effervescent. <laughs> you got to remember, I, my experience with the fall was it all was immediately having Brits there, you know. Yes, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah. No, I don't remember the press, being pressure from Beggar's Banquet to – there was never anybody fr- from in the studio from the label. I know. I don't. I don't remember anybody from the um, 
record company in the studio. Because you see them, you see them films are like you know, there's films like Bob Dylan and stuff in the studio, and there's like 35. Mm. I'm not comparing the fault of Bob Dylan, but <laughs> that thing where the record company comes down and stands there and listens all day, it must be really, must be a pain in the arse. <laughs> but yeah, so so it was kind of internal the idea that the fall would get a bit poppier at that point. You reckon? I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know whether the songwriting changed much, per se. I mean, it was definitely, there was definitely, a, like you say, a little bit of a, bit of polished, bit of fairy dust put on the bastard, wasn't there? I think <laughs> that was well, down to you. Uh, maybe it was down, yeah. I, maybe it was down to maybe it was down to you as well. Everyone getting themselves together and the instruments and, you know, I don't remember there being big. Uh, what can I say? Discussions about sound or sonics, you know, it wasn't like. Oh, no, we never. We, we rarely talked about music, did we? Never. <laughs> really, we know the. Cause, you know, we've been in bands. We've said this before. We've been in bands since with people who will t- spend all day and all night talking about that chord you play there and yeah. what, that with that move from then the bridge and this bit. And but we never had a conversation like that ever. I mean, I don't. I don't think we had the language to be honest. <laughs> to do it, so no, we weren't. A, we weren't interested in B. We couldn't have talked about it even. So <laughs> 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 then, of course, then the next big step was you did um, this nation saving grace. That's right. That was the yeah. the next year, I suppose, or not yeah. not too long after. Um, so that which is kind of held up by a lot of people as well, it it depends, obviously, it depends on your last. Greatest like record the, of all the, time. Oh, yeah. Greatest record of all time. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, lads. <laughs> um, that was another one where the studio was chosen by um, by Beggar's Banquet. By where, was that? where was that then? It was called the Music Factory, I think. Music Factory. And it was in Holloway Road, which is north, like Seven Sisters, Finsbury Park. Okay. Uh, that sort of area north of south of Hampstead Heath, kind of, uh, but before Camden, yeah. between Camden and Hampstead Heath kind of thing. And yeah. it was a big modern studio. It had really good equipment and stuff. And it was all kind of um, uh, sliding glass doors and quite a lot of space to move around. And um, it was okay. It was quite air, uh, daylight as well. Right, uh, which no one was really into, really. <laughs> um, but they always think that's a big plus for studios. Well, I always think the best studios are the ones where you can't tell whether it's night or day. That's right, yeah. I think. So, you know, you could be three in the morning, could be three in the afternoon. You, you, you're just in the studio, aren't you? You're just kind of in that zone. Yeah. Well, the worst thing, and that's what's that studio up in Liverpool, Par Street as well, and it's got... Uh, it's got these roof windows, roof lights. So there's also a motor museum. I think no, I think you can uh, cut out the daylight. But they've got in, in Par Street, they've got these um, skylights, and so it's always daylight. And it's like, have you got any curtains? You know, can <laughs> you know, can you get some curtains on that window and do it? And you'd end up getting a blanket or putting your coat over the window to just kind of. Quieten the sun down, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, but we don't want the sun shining on. We don't want sun daylight shining on the magic. Yeah, let's face it. <laughs> so, what were your experiences of that then, Steve? Because you had been away and came back, didn't you? For um... yeah, it's a weird one for me that this nation saving grace. Because I'd only just come back into the band after like six, seven months off. Right. So you did. Uh, so was it? Um, couldn't get ahead was a single without that you weren't on Steve is that right yeah that's gonna ask John you could you did did you do some work you did some work with Simon on bass then that's right and you you'd, so you never played on Cruiser's I Creek I didn't play on Cruiser's Creek no. No. okay so because that was um they did they did a lot of stuff in that in, in them months yeah that's right we went to uh that studio um oh, i can't remember what it's called now it's called the chapel i think and it's in hampton bishop near hereford and wow. it's actually uh uh the converted chapel with a house next door and again beggar's banquet found it i think for 200 quid you got the house with six bedrooms and the kitchen and everything and um, and a chapel next door where you could record, which was great. I mean, I did quite a few records there. I did XTC, uh, Gene Loves Jezebel. I did an album wow. with them there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it was my home for that period. So they, yeah, they were on Beggar's Banquet as well, weren't they? <laughs> That's oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, we did. Couldn't get ahead and rolling Danny. Yeah. Yeah. And Cruiser's Creek. And, and, and Vixen. Hang on, we Vixen, also apparently. did uh, Brits's single. And you were working was, on the adult now, I was going to say. Yeah, it was quite a time. Incense and Peppermint. Yeah. You know, Mark oh, right, okay. And go, okay, we're going to do Brits's song today. I'm going to the pub. And <laughs> he'll go to the pub. And, <laughs> so but, everybody. So the, so the fall were on that, were they? They were on the Incense and Peppermint. That was... Yeah, it's Carl, it's Carl um, on drums. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Simon, I presume. And Simon and Brits's mate, whose name was Phil, and he had a band called Khmer Rouge. Khmer oh, yeah. Rouge. That was, yeah, that's yeah. Phil Phil Schofield. Not, that's not it. that one. That's yeah, it. it was obviously it was obviously um, um, Marsha's ex partner. That's it? right. Well, the two yeah. of them were there. Yeah, he played great guitar across it. You know, do you do wow. hear that sustaining guitar and uh, on Incense and Peppermints? I mean, we stuck to the original, really. And yeah. But it's Similar arrangement, pretty, isn't it? But, uh, you know, I'm quite proud of this. It's quite a good sound, you know, for considering yeah. we just bashed it out literally, you know, one afternoon and then uh, we had dinner. It, it, and then, it really doesn't sound like it's bashed out. It yeah, sounds it like they've spent weeks on it. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't. We didn't. It was bashed. It literally bashed out in a few afternoons and then after dinner we'd go back and do Cruiser's Creek or something, you know. I tell you what, there's no way we'd have been there to get away with that without being funny. Was the doing your solo? There was never anyone asking you to do your solo album in the mornings, was there, Steve? When you were... <laughs> <laughs> I'm real for one. <laughs> Go for a pint with Mark Riley. You're in the sin bin for the week. <laughs> Andy, um... did you, did uh, they did rebellious jukebox as well, didn't they? That's it. For yeah, now, yeah. B-sides and mm. yeah, that's right. Well, but uh, so. that's Carl singing at the start of Incense and Peppermints. Is it? Da, 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 you know, where it comes in on the intro. Hey, there's a Sonny and Cher for the, uh, the 80s, <laughs> isn't there? Bricks and Carl. That's great. Sonny and Cher. should have marketed that, shouldn't they? should have done and Bricks. you, babe, with Carl and yeah. Bricks. <laughs> 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 oh, see, I, if I, I could have suggested that, that'd have been massive. We did, we did massive. So then the next one, and this is a bit, I, I don't know if it really is a sore point, is uh, uh, Ben, ben Sinister. Sinister. Yeah, yeah. I was on that briefly. I was on, uh, we did some in square one in Berry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that I came back because Carl had gone, woke up, Carl had gone by then. I didn't quite know. And it was before was. they got Simon, so I did like three days or something. And we did. Uh, Dr. Faustus mm. and Living, Living Too, too late, late and didn't we do Living Too Late Hot After Shave Pop did, Luciani. did we not or not After Shave Pop yeah yeah so then where was the rest of it done I don't, I don't know actually <laughs> I'm looking at it I thought that was done in, Abbey Road um, was it well Abbey Road yeah Mr. Pharmacists and British Grenadiers mm-hmm. uh, and Bournemouth yeah. Runner Maybe Riddler as well, but Bournemouth Runner, British Grenadiers, and Mr. Pharmacist were definitely done at Abbey Road. And there's right. no multi track. I don't know if anyone kept telling people, and no one really understood it because I had this thing that we were doing all these tracks. Yeah. Simon was putting stuff down. Mark was basically. The- Which Simon? Which Simon are you talking? We've got two Simons then, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean Simon Rogers, Rogers is it? Yeah, yeah. Simon Rogers with his keyboards and different yeah. ideas and things would, would put stuff down. Some were good, some were, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then invariably Mark Mark would one minute say he likes it and then he doesn't and then it would be taking it all off and this kind of thing. I don't know. I got to this, I got to this stage where I thought, hang on, all Mark really wants to hear is what he hears on the first playback. So when you play as a band and you record yeah. it and you listen back and like I or the producer says, yeah, that's a good take, listen back to it. Mark listens back and to him that's a record finished. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's no reason to mix it or tamper with it, kind of thing. Yes, and of course, what you end up, what I end up doing, or what you normally end up doing, is pulling it apart and adding things, overdubbing, mixing it, making the bass a bit bassier and the snare drum with a bit of reverb, you know, those sort of yeah. things, whatever. And um, Mark didn't want all that, so I said, "Well, I'll tell you what we we'll do. We're going to Abbey Road, and I think we were there two days, or even only one day." Um, 
and rec- yeah. and, and uh, just record straight stereo, straight down to. It's actually recorded on a what's it called? An F one, which is a. Uh, th- th- there should be a tape of it, so I did it on tape and the, the digital video cassette as well, which was right. only oh, better yeah. at the time. Um, Sony Betamax was no, not Betamax. What's the other one? I can't no, it was the two thousand was it? C- Cinema two thousand or something? It was. Yeah. Supposedly it had, it had fantastic. It had fantastic um, fidelity, so it sounded exactly. There was no hiss on it or anything. Or That's it. right. Yeah. That was the future. I know, I know that because the band I was in after the fall, mm. we had a drum machine and we used one for the drums and yeah. a bloody video recorder. And then we supported the fall, and uh, I think Simon tried to put it on fast forward after. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is that there's no multi-track of Mr. Pharmacist. So if someone wanted to find, you know, the 24 track and Mr. Pharmacist, it d- doesn't exist. You know, you can't. Really? Like, right. Uh, so it was just two track then. That was well, I'm obviously not recorded. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, two track. That's so that even that wasn't uh, rough enough for me. He wanted it from the cassette. Is that true? He wanted the album from the cassette. <laughs> it's. It might be. I don't think it's for the whole album, but yes, there were incidences because we, the, the, all these re- the three records I did and most of the records I did at that time were were, were mastered by a guy called Steve Angel at Utopia Studios. And what was great about his mastering room is he had big speakers and he was a very smart guy. You know, had a, always had yeah. a tie and looked really clean and everything. But he had a fish tank with these tropical fish in between the speakers. So you could stand there and just watch all these, you know, big tropical fish tanks. It must have been deaf as a bleeding post fish. (laughs) (laughs) But he mastered all those records, and he was really great and did loads of stuff. And... um, he, you know, and he, we made up the side, cutting and everything, because it was really discutting. It wasn't mastering. You had to, yeah, for, to to cut an LP on vinyl, you have to play that side from start to finish, you know, and then yeah. that's it. That's it. That's that's the, the, then it's sent off to the factory, kind of thing. So Mark would sit there while we did that, and then at the end, object to it all. And it's like Mark, you know, and he's saying, "Well, I think you've changed the mixes around. Accuse me of not using the same mixes." And the running right. order was different. And I'm like, no, the running order is the same. Look on the cassette as what we've got it here on the master, you know. And he was just kind of, you know, what Mark was like, you know, he was questioning everything that I was doing. And he played the cassette of, I can't remember, there might have been one or two songs, I'm not quite certain. Um, and said it sounded better than the the actual tape that we were were using to cut the record, and so I just said, "Oh, okay, just copy the cassette." So Steve Angel copied the cassette and edited it into our tape because every other master was yeah. hold aside one, and then he he copied and edited it in, and that was used, you know. So I, well, it's I, interesting that, isn't it? Because you would think it'd stick out like a sore thumb. If you can't remember which tracks they were, you'd think you'd listen to them and go, bloody hell, listen to that. That's on a cassette, that. <laughs> that's the magic of the fool, you see. <laughs> that's what, that's Any the other band that stick them out? It's a little bit of magic, you know, yeah, how yeah. it works. So, I don't know. So you weren't there for that, Steve, no? What's that? You weren't there for that session there, the court? No, no, no. No, that would be like no. Monday morning, 10 o'clock, just me, Mark and Brits. Right. Okay. So that was the last thing you did with the fall, was it? It was, yeah. And I'll tell you what was really odd, because, as I say, we did all these studios, you know, which I'd never worked in cheap, cheap. They weren't, yeah, they were cheap. They weren't first division studios. And although we went to Abbey Road just for a day, I think, and recorded those three yeah. songs um as soon as i left someone else was producing them i think it was craig leon and they were at abbey road and the whole band were recording and brits was doing a adult net solo album with a budget on at abbey road you know so craig leon did the friends experiment john is that right yeah and what was on that then uh, so that was done at a really posh studio oh that was done at abbey road was it yeah yeah, yeah. partly wow. and partly a studio in manchester which one? Font <laughs> <laughs> of all knowledge. Because <laughs> that, that, that's uh, what, when we did Ghosted by a House, wasn't it? It what could be, yeah. What are you asking yeah. me? None of us were there. Yeah. <laughs> You're the only one who was there. <laughs> I did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what there? You, you, what's it like, Abbey Road, then? You've both been in Abbey Road. You've both recorded in Abbey Road. Great. Great, great to recording, yeah. 
I th- yeah, my, so my memory is that we were in a lot longer than a day with you, John. I think we might have been two or three days, mm. actually. It was a great... Not a lot longer. No. Well, it wasn't uh, a lot longer. It was that really big room, wasn't it? And it was all... I seem yeah. to remember us having all... It all being sort of glass-walled off. Yeah, yeah, there's screens and stuff. You yeah. know, although the room looks great and everything, you can't uh you still have to screen stuff off, you know, and you can't really have drums and acoustic guitar, for instance, you know, unless the yeah. unless the acoustic guitar or the drums have got a roof on, you know, you you end up <laughs> you know, building a box and putting a roof on or something just to keep then it all down. So it defeats the object of having the big space anyway, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so many great records. It It is like, a, what could you say, an acoustic amplifier, that studio, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of like um, it doesn't matter where you put the microphone, it's always going to sound good, you know. Yeah. A lot of studios, uh-huh. dead studios, you know, you have to get mics in close or you have to be precise where you're putting them. But Abbey Road 2, it doesn't matter where you put the mic, it'll always sound good. <laughs> it'll right. always have something, you know. So when you stopped working with the four, was that because of that? Would you, had you had enough or was it just that who's, who, think... had you had enough or did Mark had enough for you or? <laughs> Probably Mark had enough for me. Um, I think we just exhausted ourselves after three albums, yeah. really. I yeah. mean, we'd, uh-huh. we'd kind of, said all we needed to add to say to each other. I mean, Mark and Brits came round to my house for dinner a few times when we you know, first met yeah. kind of thing. Uh-huh. And if they were in London, we'd often hang out. You know, I was up in, you know, and up in Presswich and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, we were, dare I say it, we were, we were kind of mates. I mean, for, yes. to do those three records, yeah. we must have got on really well no, together. I didn't, think for, I didn't think for a minute, but it's kind of, when they, they tell the story, it's like you sort you threw your toys out of the pram because he'd mixed from a cassette, but I don't think that's quite the case, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not the case at all. You know, I love it. Um, I wouldn't do it. I was, was going to say, I wouldn't mix a whole record on a cassette just to go for that sound, you know. Um, no. But at the same time, I don't think we could have done another record together, you know. No. Because uh-huh. um, we'd kind of exhausted our, our potential, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a few things like that with Mark where you – you look at it and you th- everybody thinks that's a terrible idea. But then, you know, with hindsight and later on, it kind of works, doesn't it, I think? Yeah. He, yeah. He, you know, he kind of knew what he was doing, I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Well, I think well, I think we're about uh, hours up, John. Lovely to talk oh, to you. Yeah, really nice. Yeah. All right. So can we do another one? We can do another one where we don't bother talking about the fall. We'll just talk about all the stuff you did before and after the fall. I could... I all could right, listen, to you, listen to you talk about that all night, really. <laughs> it's funny because I've been doing a few of these uh, interview podcasts and yeah. some of them, I did one that, do you know how long we were talking? Five hours. Jesus. Non-stop. We just Christ. went on and on through all sorts of stuff. Don't yeah. worry, we can edit it. And, of course, he hasn't put it out yet. <laughs> second, second second one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We like to keep it lean and keep people keen, John. That's what it is. No, it's great. It's great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, good. Great. All right, it was great to speak to you, mate. All yeah. right. Take care. And as we say at the end of every one of these, we'll have to get together for a pint right. one of these days. Oh, yeah. There's going to be 500 was in this pub, but I don't care. It's not my round. <laughs> All right, John, take care. Okay, cheers. Thanks, right, John. Thanks for joining us again on All Brother. Episodes are now released every second Friday, so you can watch the next episode in two weeks. Please follow us on Twitter at Old Brother Show where you can find a link to Spotify and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS or any other platform you care to mention. If you fancy giving us a rating on iTunes or tell your friends about us, we'll be more than grateful. If you require further reading, you can check out our books published by Root Publishers. Hope to see you all soon and remember, if you're driving, take your car. Ta-da! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.